Let's turn our Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. As most of you know, we are right now commencing our, our study, our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis. We call that here expositional teaching. Andy and Elisa both talked about the nine marks of a healthy church book that Mark Dever wrote. Mark Dever is a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and he wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And one of the nine marks of a healthy church is expositional teaching, which is probably too fancy a word for most of us, but basically that means that you just teach verse by verse through the Bible, that way you can't skip anything. And in God's wisdom over time, you hit everything. And so we try to do that here on a consistent basis, and we have now begun the book of Genesis. We have gotten all the way together through the book of John. We've gotten all the way together through the book of Romans, and now we're picking Genesis. So we've done some pretty ambitious stuff to this point, and we believe now at this point it's important for us to go to the Old Testament, Genesis in particular, because we find there the beginnings. And we also want to demonstrate over the course of the next couple of years as we go through the book of Genesis that the richness of the Old Testament is there for us to behold, there for us to taste, and in it we're going to see the glory of our God and we're going to see the person of Christ promised, which of course we've seen fulfilled in a lot of the things that we've already studied together. So we're continuing on today in verses 6 through 25 of Genesis chapter 1, and it's been my contention as we have begun this chapter that really the first verses of our Bible teach us about the glory of God. So this first chapter and really into the next couple of chapters, we learn about the story of creation, a very true story. And through this true story, we see the glory of God on display. Now, I've said to you that I think really for generations now, we have approached the early chapters of Genesis completely wrongly. And frankly, I think we do that with a lot of the Bible, but I think anecdotally we do that all the time with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is not primarily about science, I have contended with you. I'm not saying there's no science there, so if that kind of raises the hair on the back of your neck, just calm down. We'll get to more of that in a couple of weeks. But I think the primary thing that we find in Genesis chapter 1 is theology. And what I mean by that is we find truth that teaches us about our God and that teaches us about ourselves. So, are there scientific facts to be learned here in this chapter? I think so. But even more so, these chapters were written to call Israel's attention to the greatness of her God and then in turn to call her to trust Him. And I believe that though these chapters happened so many thousands of years ago, and of course they were, they were written thousands of years ago as well, that they hold the same importance for us today. It is my hope, it is my prayer, that as we approach God's Word today, that we will come away with the same thoughts, that our God is grand, that He is majestic, that He is powerful, that He is sovereign. And while these things cause us to fear Him, to be in awe of Him, to respect Him, perhaps even more so, they call us to trust Him and to love Him. So before we read these verses, I'd like to pray. God will impress upon us the importance of His Word, the power of His Word, and call us to trust and to love Him. Our Father, as we now approach You, grant us all. Help us to see Your awesome power and character. 
and grant us rest as we consider how You have made everything, and perhaps even more so, why You have made everything. Father, creation declares Your glory, and part of this is Your glorious grace upon us as Your people. So, Father, in Your great power today, through Your Spirit, open our eyes, open our minds, and thrill us and comfort us. We need it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, you come to today, and there are a thousand things on your mind. I know that. But I want you today, in faith, to ask the Spirit to drive these things from your mind and to rest under the power and wonder of God's Word today. So, I encourage you to do that as I begin reading in verse 6 down through verse 25. This is God's Word. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with it, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So, Moses wrote these words down around 3,400 years ago. He wrote them down probably sometime after Israel encamped at Sinai. Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, which was full of false deities, a deity of the sun, a deity of the river, and a host of other deities. Israel would soon be entering into the land of Canaan, which was full of other kinds of deities. 
We are not surprised by this because this happens still to this day. Paul comments on this in Romans chapter 1 where he says that mankind has taken what he sees about the grandeur of God, and rather than using those things to point them to God and to worship God, they instead worship the created things. The Scriptures teach us that God has set eternity in man's heart. Man thinks beyond the finite, beyond the temporal. Man thinks grand thoughts because there is a grand God, and He has designed them that way to long for, to have affections for transcendent things. Of course, in mankind's sinfulness, they have taken the transcendent, and they have morphed it down. They have bent inward, and rather than worshiping the Almighty who made all that they see, they instead worship what they see. Israel was coming out of such a setting, and they were about to enter into another setting much like it. After Israel receives her covenant at Mount Sinai, where they see the glory of Yahweh, their covenant God and their Creator God, thunder down on the mountain and give them a law, what did they need to know? How would they interpret the giving of that law at that frightening mountain? How would they interpret the fact that God was giving them water from rocks? How would they interpret the cloud that led them How would they interpret the Red Sea through which they had walked on dry land but had crashed down upon their enemies and crushed them into oblivion? How would they interpret the killing of all the firstborn of Egypt so that Israel might be released to go into their promised land? How would they differentiate between God's judgment upon their enemies who worshipped all these false deities and His favor upon them? wherein He had saved them and rescued them and distinguished His love from His judgment. How would they interpret such things? When they would enter into the promised land and they would conquer cities merely by marching around them and blowing horns, when they would enter into a land when they would be surrounded by neighbors who worshipped other deities, who sometimes would defeat them and sometimes would be defeated by them, how would, how would they interpret all of that? When they became fat and happy, experiencing all the robust blessings of all that God had brought upon them, how would they maintain affections for the one true God when in turn they might turn their affections toward the objects that had been given to them for their faith rather than the one who had given them the objects? In light of all this, Moses writes, And if you think about it, we are the same today. False deities abound, and sometimes they have names, but sometimes they're merely subtle objects. You may not worship Allah or Baal or Ashtaroth or the many thousands of gods of Hinduism or the false gods of Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever else you want to put into the equation. But you might worship currency. You might worship those little image bearers that run around your house that we call kids. You might worship your job. You might worship your possessions. You might worship your ego. You might worship 
how you're thought of by other people, your reputation. You might worship your pedigree or your heritage. As Calvin said so many years ago, and of course, as we often say here, these hearts are like idol factories, and they never shut down. They run three shifts a day, even through the holidays, and they're constantly churning out things that we worship. Israel needed these words to call their attention to the one true God, and so do we. Israel also needed these words to remind them that there was a God who was watching over them. So, let me tell you in perhaps more simple terms what I'm trying to communicate here. Israel needed not only to understand that there was one true God that they should worship, that they should not worship idols, but secondarily and perhaps just as importantly, they needed to know that there was a God that was for them, that was watching out for them, in fact, that had made all things for their pleasure. So, yes, Israel needed to worship the one true God in the one right way, but Israel also needed to know that there was a God who saw them, who knew every hair on their head, who would care for them, who would sustain them, who loved them. And so, the words of Genesis 1 primarily were written by Moses to call Israel to exclusive worship of the one true God. And then secondarily, to call them to total trust in their gracious covenant-keeping God. And do we not need those words to calm our fears and to call us to assurance today? Yes, we need to be called to exclusive worship, but we doubt and we fear all of the time. Now, there are some among us who have more of a tendency toward anxiety. There are some among us who are bigger worry warts than your neighbor. That's just true. Some of you are just geared that way. I have a son who's nine, who ever since he came out of the womb has been carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's the kind of kid that sits in the back seat and peers over my shoulder and looks at our gas gauge because he's worried we're going to run out. This is the kind of kid that when we're on vacation, will ask questions to make sure that there is enough currency left in our bank account to pay for the remaining meals and the fun outings that we're going to have. He's too young to worry about these things, but he inherited this from his father. I've always been that way, and I remain an anxious person to this day. It is sin. But all of us, in one way or another, whether we're grand worriers or low-level worriers, we all worry. And these verses in Genesis, again, not only call us to exclusive worship, but to trust the one true God. I likened this chapter last time we taught, which was two weeks ago, to a mother preparing the nursery for her child before the child comes home from the hospital. So, I'll go back through that illustration again. You know what it's like, especially when you have your first kid. Like, second and third kid, nobody even cares about. Like, you barely even know they're there. But, but first kid, it's a big deal, right? I mean, you paint you get the beautiful crib, and you, you put their name in stenciling over the crib, and, and you hang like a, a, a mobile thing over their crib, and then you, it's a girl, you get a little pretty chandelier you hang from the ceiling, and you're constantly checking Pinterest on your iPad like three hours a night, and, and you want to make it like the cutest nursery in the world. And of course, you, you can't just keep it in, you've got to share it, and so you invite your friends over, and you put it on Facebook, and, and what are you doing? You're nesting. And so, dads, husbands, we, we sigh, and we go along, and we 
give you some more money so you can put some more things in there, and, and then the rocking chair is ready with the glider, and everything is perfect. And so mommy has the baby, and she brings the baby home, and it's a big deal after the first few weeks. Maybe you've left the baby in the bassinet beside your bed because parents of first-time children always think that your child's going to stop breathing every moment of the night. So you put them in a bassinet for the first few weeks, and mommy gets no sleep, not only because the baby's up every three hours, but because when the baby's not awake, you're listening to make sure the baby's breathing, right? But eventually you take baby who has now proven that he or she can make it through the night and not stop breathing, and you put them in their little castle. And it's beautiful, right? And you put them in their best outfit, and you take tons of pictures. And, and you've created an environment where, where baby can enjoy it, although they have no idea, right? They were happy in the bassinet beside the bed, even though dad wasn't. And, and the real issue is mom enjoys it. Mom has put all this work into the environment, and mom smiles on the child every day when she goes in to care for him or her. We're like this when we build our houses. Remember when we built our house? We were there all the time. We were less busy then, and we had time to do that. So every day we would drive up, and we would see the newest progress. And usually it was like, you know, three or four boards, and every once in a while I would jump in and do a couple extra things that we wanted in the house. And we got to pick what we wanted in the house. We got to pick what we wanted in our, the colors of our kitchen and the carpet and all that kind of stuff. It was a big deal. We, we wanted it to be in an environment where we would raise our family and enjoy it. God made us like this because He's like this. As image bearers, we can understand why He made the world the way He made it. And so He tells Israel in these verses, and He tells us that I made you, but I made you to live in a world that would glorify Me and reflect how great I am, and a world that you would enjoy, a world that you would enjoy Me. Now, next week, we're going to get down into verse 26 of this chapter and go down to the first few verses of chapter 2 and talk about the creation of man himself. But we're focusing now today in verses 6 through 25 on the environment itself, and I want you to think of it that way. Moses wrote these words to show us that God made an environment in which we could worship Him and enjoy Him forever. So, the first thing I think that we should look at today is space and the stars. So, we're talking about here the second day. We've already covered in verses 3 through 5 the first day reason we slowed down through those first few verses, I think that there's subtle hints here, sort of undertones, that the Son of God Himself is showing up and, and shining His light on the earth. You'll notice that the, uh, the lights themselves, the sun and the moon, are not made till the fourth day. That's kind of interesting. But there's light already in verses 3 through 5. Where does that come from? It was my contention as you look at passages like John 1, where Jesus is called the light of the world, as well as Revelation chapters 21 and 22, where it is said that there is no need for sun, for God and the Lamb are there, and they are the lamp that shines in the world. I wanted to slow down on those verses, verses 3 through 5, to say that there's Jesus, I believe, shining His light on the uncreated, sort of um, disordered creation that God has already put together, and it shows that the Trinity is there from the very beginning, specifically the Son of God. It's beautiful. What's going on there? Well, the first day, God is creating everything, but He's creating space. Verses 6 through 8, I think He does more of that. He separates the waters from the waters. He's starting to bring order to the disorder. He's creating sky, Space. 
And then you'll notice that God brings lights. So here's what Moses does here in this chapter. It's, there's great design to this chapter. The first three days of creation, God creates region. God creates sphere. God creates habitat. Days one through three are creation of habitat. Days four through six are creation of things that will inhabit those spheres, that will live in those habitats. So, what does God do first? God creates space. Then He creates something to fill space. That's what verses 14 through 19 are really all about. So, earlier on days one and two, God created space and sky. Specifically in verses 3 through 5, like we saw last time, God created the the whole universe, the cosmos. But what will inhabit the cosmos? That's what's going on in verses 14 through 19. It'll be stars, heavenly bodies. Now, why did Moses write like this? Well, I think, again, it's to encourage Israel to worship exclusively of God. It's to call Israel to, to have trust in the one true God as well. But one of the problems for Israel is they lived in a land with people who believed that the astral bodies they saw, the stars, the sun and the moon specifically, were gods themselves. And if Israel was to have any sort of, and this is a bit of an anachronism, but any sort of evangelistic appeal to their pagan neighbors, but even more so an ability to withstand the idolatry of their neighbors… They had to understand that the things that they saw, these grand transcendent things, were not in and of themselves powerful, but they received power from the one true God. In other words, Israel was not to worship the moon or the sun or any of the other stars. Israel was to worship the one who made all of those things. So, if God made space roughly in verses 3 through 5, God made the sun and the moon and all the rest of the stars to inhabit space. Let's just talk about the sun for a minute. If the sun, S-O-N of God, is shining in verses 3 through 5 to begin to illumine the world before God actually makes the astral bodies like the sun and the moon, it will not always be that way. For a period, we call that time human history, there will actually be stars which illumine the earth. So, through the sun, we get light, we get warmth, we get energy. If there were no sun, not only would this be a miserable place, it would be an uninhabitable place. We couldn't live here. So, God put the sun the exact distance from the earth that it needed to be so that we would not be too hot, not be too cold that we would rotate around it like we should, that we would have the energy that we should, that our atmosphere would be constructed in such a way that we would not be burnt up, but we would still receive the energy that we need to have sustained life. Here's a couple sort of random facts about the sun which I find kind of interesting, and hopefully it will lift your eyes to the grandeur of God's creation. In our solar system, the sun itself makes up 98% of all matter. Our earth, which of course is a huge place, would fit into our sun millions of times. And our sun is only a medium-sized star. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, 
has about 400 billion, with a B, 400 billion other stars. There are some galaxies that contain 100 trillion stars. Astronomers think that there may be 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe containing a septillion stars. That's 10 with 24 zeros. But in the middle of all that is the one sun that I believe sustains the one planet where God's people live. In all of the grandeur of all of creation, God made this earth to be a habitable place. But it's not stale. It's not sterile. God could have made it that way, right? God could have done whatever He wanted. He could have made this one big, huge room with white linoleum floors, and we all wore white uniforms, and we all drank little gray juice bottles, and that's what sustained us. And we all spoke like robots, automatons, and, and we walk around and we relate to each other and we relate to the one true God, and, and, and that's, that's the way He could have made it. He could have made it sterile and boring and uninviting, but He didn't. He created a place that we would enjoy, and He created a place which would declare His great handiwork. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 19. We read from this verse, uh, these verses earlier, but I want to return to them for just a moment and once again feel the import of what it is that David is saying here. So, if God creates space on day one and the astral bodies, the stars, which will inhabit space on day four, notice what David, who had spent much time observing these things, said. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, What's God's glory? Let's define that, because we we use a lot of terms in Christianity we don't quite know how to define. God's glory is His greatness. So, David is saying here that the heavens, space, declares the greatness of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. We won't take time to read the rest of the verses. Well, what are these things saying about God? Well, it speaks of His grand power. If there are 10 times 24 zero, and that's just what we estimate, stars out there, that's astounding. It speaks of God's incredible, unmatched, unparalleled, unrivaled power. It speaks of His beauty. God made these things for us to be in awe of not just their grand power, but also how beautiful they are. It speaks of His love that He would want us to live in such a place that we would enjoy. And just like a mother prepares the nursery for her child and puts so much thought into it because she loves that child with all of her heart, how much more does God, who loves perfectly, want us to enjoy Him here in this place? Turn with me, please, to Job chapters 38 through 42. We won't take time, of course, to read all these verses here, but I want to just for a moment describe to you why these verses are here, and we'll read a few of them. Most of you are pretty familiar with Job's story. Um, Job had gone through great trial under temptation and persecution from the evil one himself, Satan. God had allowed Job to go under this intense trial. 
Job, for the most part, maintained his integrity, but Job clearly doubted. There's really no other way around that. Job was not an incredibly sinful man compared to a lot of people around him, but Job was still a sinful man and doubted the one true God. Job says some pretty arrogant things, some pretty high-handed things in his speeches throughout the book, and then God shows up. And he, he's speaking to Job as a son. And you have to remember back at the beginning of this book, if you know anything about it, Job is pointed out to Satan by God himself because the Father, the one true God, loved Job. And he lets Job have some tether. He lets him have some rope. And he lets him play this out. He lets him suffer. And he lets the suffering reveal certain things about Job's heart. And then God shows up in chapter 38. Then the Lord finally answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds and garment, its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? Down in verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, which God seems to have emptied this particular winter? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which are reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Verse 28, has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come from forth? Or who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, these are constellations, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? And then he goes on in the next few chapters and talks about specific animals. How He feeds them and clothes them. And by the end, you find that Job gets the point. In chapter 42, verse 1, Job answers the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. His eyes had been opened to all these things God had put in front of him from the beginning. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What do these verses hold for us today? What did Job need to know? That there was a God sovereignly superintending all things. But there was also a God who loved His creation, who took care of it. Why did God come to Job and talk about creation? 
Why didn't he just immediately say to him, hey, Job, I just want you to know that Satan and I have been having this discussion in heaven. I put him on a leash. I let him persecute you, but you've done pretty well. There's some things I'd like to clean up a little bit, but, you know, you've been pretty faithful. Why didn't he say that? Job wanted the answer to two plus two, and God gave him the answer green. He's like, I don't, that's not what I want to know. That's not the question I'm asking. God came along and did not answer Job the way he wanted because he wanted to make a point to him. What he's saying is, Job, everything you see around you, it answers the question. I am good and I am powerful. And if I don't forget the ostrich and don't forget Leviathan or wild donkeys or horses, how much more do I care for you? Don't you think perhaps that's what Jesus had in mind in Matthew chapter 6? Because in Matthew chapter 6, you find Jesus talking about all the things that creation declared to us about God. So, in keeping with that, let's move on to the next couple things that Moses is talking about in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 25. God made the skies and the seas on day 2 and 3, land and animals, and then on days 5 and 6, He filled it. So, day 1, space. Day four, things to fill space. Day two, skies and seas, things to fill skies and seas, birds and fish. Day three, he made the land. Day six, he made things to walk on the land. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter 6. Now, we looked at these verses a little while ago, but I want to show you how Jesus interprets these things for His hearers. Of course, Jesus was there when creation came to be. He helped bring it to be. I also think perhaps Jesus had in mind Job chapters 38 through 42 when He spoke these words. So, He says in verse 25, "'Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing?' Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What did Job need to hear? What did Israel from Moses' pen need to hear? They needed to hear that their God was powerful, their God was strong, but they needed to know that everything they saw, space and the things that inhabit space, skies and seas and the things that inhabit them and land and all the things that inhabit the land, all these things point not only to the power of God, but to the love and grace of God. I've already said to you today that Israel's neighbors, and of course we do this to this day as well, we can take the created things and worship those things themselves. That's, of course, wrong. Those things are to point us to the one true God. They are not to become the objects of our worship themselves. But we look at these things, and we're in awe of them because they point to the grand power and grand love of the one true God. 
There's a reason why we love it so much here. God made the world that way. God made us to love it here. And God made this a place that could be loved. I've said to you many times that much like David, it's good for us to get outside because when we get outside, we see the grandeur of all things. This is one of the reasons why as Buckeyes, we love spring, right? The kids can finally go outside and and they can play and, and see things all around them. It's good for us to go out and be with them and to help them interpret everything that they see. Hey, kids, how, how is it that we have oxygen here? God uses green things to bring us oxygen. Why is it that there is sun and moon to rule the day and the night? How is, how is our earth broken up into seasons? Why is it tilted like it's tilted? Why is there a thing that we call the moon that waxes and wanes? that calls us to attention, that controls the changing of the tides every day, inexorably. Why? Why are there mammals and reptiles and amphibians? Why are there birds? Why are there fishes? Why are there oceans full of grand power? Why does God send snow on the Rockies? How does God water the whole western portion of our earth through those snows. Why has God done all these things? Not so we will worship creation itself, but so that we will see that not only is He powerful, but He's full of grace. This place is a place to be loved. And I think that's why we feel so tied here. I think that's also, and I want you to hear me carefully here, I think that's also one of the reasons why a disembodied ethereal eternity is tasteless for us. Here's what I mean. I think a lot of times whenever we talk about heaven, we have, we have misspoken, we have mistaught. What I mean is, we're not going to live for eternity in some wispy, like, stratus cloud-like atmosphere. We're going to live here, but a better here. You see, the destiny of this place is bound up with our destiny. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation, all the created order, is groaning, awaiting its redemption. That means that though this place is is awe-inspiring and beautiful and draws our attention, it's not probably what it once was, and it's certainly not what it will one day become. I think it's basically clear in the Scriptures that when God cursed mankind because of His sin, there was also a curse upon the ground. And as awe-inspiring as this world yet remains to be, it's not what it once was. But much like God through Christ is reversing the curse upon sinful mankind, God will one day reverse the curse upon this earth, and He'll refashion it And that's why we love it here. We don't fear death merely because of separation. I think partially, and this might be a small component, but we partially fear death because we don't want to leave this place because we were made to be here. And that's why for eternity we'll get bodies back and we'll live here. So God made space in its vastness to call us to awe and wonder. 
He made the stars to give us light, to call us to wonder as well. Specifically, made the sun to make this earth a beautiful and habitable place, and the moon to, to give us wonder at night and to control so much of our earth. As we look up at the skies, we're in awe of, of how beautiful they are. As we look at the seas, we're in awe of, its, of their power. Through the skies and through the seas, we're and wonder, we are in wonder, we have all of the things that we see in them, the birds and the fish. And through these, God gives bounty to us to enjoy food. As we look at the land around us, the place that we inhabit, we get to live there. We get to enjoy it. And it's, it's varied in its topography. It's varied in its habitat. There's mountains and there's deserts. There's coastlines and there's dry places. There's hot places and there's cold places. I think one of the great things that we get to enjoy here in Ohio is that we, in fact, have four seasons. Now, we're just coming out of one of the toughest winters we've ever had, and you might say, actually, I don't like it. I'd rather move to a place which is very temperate and never changes. But as you experience sort of the, the dour side of winter, the, the death, if you will, of winter, where all things are sort of barren, And we live in a place between two basic jet streams from Canada and from the Gulf of Mexico where it's really gray here. We have tough winters here. Even when it's not super cold and and not super snowy, it's still kind of dreary here. But what's better than central Ohio than spring? It's amazing. We have kind of hot summers, and then we get fall. What's better than Ohio in the fall? It's amazing. And the cycles of death and rebirth and warmth, and the beauty of new death, if you will, which reminds us, I think, of the passing of the saints, which will one day be with God, which is not all bad. And then another cycle of death and rebirth. This teaches us about God Himself. So, next time you're struggling with seasonal affect disorder, which I think is a very real thing, remember that God is even teaching you hard lessons through this. And through space, and the skies, and seas, and land, and all the things that inhabit these, these places, these habitats, we are reminded of God's great power. And notice what God says about each of these things. They're good. He places His benediction upon them, a blessing. God made the skies and seas, and verse 10, He calls them good. And throughout this section... God is saying, I've made all things well. At the end of our section for today, after He has made the animals to inhabit the land, He calls it good. And again, next time when we get together, we'll go into the creation of man himself. What are some implications of all this for us? Well, I think first, the earth was made for man, not man for the earth. That is to say, this is a place that we are to enjoy. I think this is the reason why the flow of the story goes like it goes. God did not talk about the creation of man first here in chapter 1. He talks about the creation of the environment. And then He talks about the creation of man, and then the rest of the Bible is about that. So, there's a pattern to this. God created the environment for mankind. This means that we are to enjoy it. It means we're to steward it well and all of its vast resources, water, animals, 
other kinds of minerals and so forth which sustain our lives. But I think we're not to abuse it. I think this calls us to responsible ecology. This doesn't mean that we worship the earth. It doesn't become the end of itself, but we do take care of it. I think we also have to be very careful that we are prompted consistently to worship. If you're going to be a good worshiper, get outside and look at it and consider, meditate. It's hard for us to do that as Westerners, right? We don't spend much time just thinking. But get outside sometime and lay on your back on the grass with your children and spend an hour talking about what you see and interpret it together. We have to be careful in doing so that we avoid idolatry. Much like Israel's neighbors, we have the tendency to do that, to worship the gift rather than the giver. And I think perhaps mostly we're to enjoy God through it. If I could say to you one primary thing as we walk away from these verses today, God has given us creation that we might enjoy Him. You see, we worship God best, we glorify Him best when we enjoy Him the most. I've already said to you that God could have made a sterile environment a place where life could be sustained, but one which we would not enjoy. But God that made the world this way. So worship Him, but you will always worship Him best as you enjoy Him. So spend some time today, this week, looking all around you at space and the things that inhabit it, like the sun and the moon. Look at the skies and the waters to think about the things that inhabit them and be in awe and be thankful. Look at the land masses around you. Think about the things that inhabit them, including you, and be in awe and be thankful and enjoy your God. That's why Moses wrote. Moses wrote that his people might worship him and him alone. Moses wanted the Israelites to not fall into the same error that their neighbors had fallen into of worshiping the created order rather than the Creator Himself. But Moses also wrote so that His people would understand that God would always take care of them, and proof of that was the creation itself, and that's amazing. So worship the one true God, but worship Him in wonder and enjoyment. Let's close today by turning to Psalm 104. So, Psalm 104 calls our attention to the one true God and specifically what He has done in creation. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of His chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He rides in the wings of the wind. He makes His messengers winds, His ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At Your rebuke they fled. At the sound of Your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that You appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so they might not again cover the earth. 
You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he may plant it, and then the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it's night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That is how a trusting, exclusive worshiper responds to creation. And that's why Genesis 1 was written. The calls to exclusive worship and to lifelong trust and enjoyment. May God fulfill His Word for us today.